Luke chapter 16, verse 19, is where we're going to be today. And it's so fun praying for all the kids going back to school. I told you before, the best part about praying for the kids to go back to school is that I'm not one of those kids that has to go back to school. Can I get an amen? Man, you know, it's just so fun. And if you're, uh, you know, aware of my family, what we do at our house is we homeschool our kids. And when I say we homeschool our kids, my wife does the homeschooling. I buy the curriculum and then she does the magic and makes them read, write, and spell and arithmetic. And then our kids are spooky smart and all credit to her. And so we get to pick our curriculum every year. And so one of the books my wife picked this year, kind of a fun one outside the box of math and, and science and all that, is this one. It's called uh, Show Me How to Survive. Okay, This is going to be real fun. And the kids have been flipping through this, getting excited about how to survive. And, and it's really important because it tells us how to live our lives and how to get through what we might encounter in life. So here's kind of the appendix at the beginning. Is that the right word? Index, appendix. What's it called? Table of contents. As I said, I'm not going back to school. Maybe I should. I knew they had a word for that, this list up front here. And here's some of the things you'll learn in this particular book. Number one, you'll learn how to treat a blister, if that happens to you. Uh, number, number two, you'll learn how to remove an object from your eye. Uh, hopefully it's not the blister in your eye. But uh, number 83, how to halt an electrocution, okay, just in case you're there on that day. Uh, number 120, how to build a campfire. Number 128, if that doesn't work, how to signal an airplane, okay? This is all these things on how to do this, and it's all illustrated here. It gets exciting, though. How to free a frozen tongue. Okay, that's in here if that ever happens to you. <laughs> Number 96. Uh, 139, how to catch a fish barehanded. Okay, just, that sounds awesome, you know. Number 146, not looking to use this one, how to impale an elk. Okay. Uh, number 148, how to fend off a mountain lion. How to, how to save a child from a coyote, 149. Okay, in case you find yourself there, coyote's got a kid. Like, I figured, I read about this, you know. 154, how to eat a scorpion because there's a way to do it wrong, okay, apparently, like, and there's a way to do it right, you know, but, uh, uh, yeah, there's the, yeah, remove the tail, I imagine, uh, number 165, how to fend off a shark, uh, number 166, how to resist a wolf pack, <laughs> not just one wolf, but a wolf pack, number 167, how to battle a pit bull, number 168, how to spike an assailant, I looked that one up, that sounded fun, you have to do it on your own time, Number one, how to deal with, how to, 171, how to deal with failed brakes, how to stop a hydroplating car, how, how to do a handshake takedown. That one's fun. Like, oh, nice to meet you. Ah, oh, you're down. <laughs> I like number 169, how to embrace your enemy. And, you know, as a Christian, you're like, oh, that's good. And you look up the graphics. You're not embracing this guy with love, man. This guy, grab him by his neck and do something, you know. And anyway, it's just how to survive. And this morning, I told my kids I was bringing this to church, and I was going to show you guys. And I, I said, you know what would make this book even better? Is at the very last page, said, and now, how to die. How to survive is great. Do you not want to survive well? I want to thrive. I want to live well. I want to do right. I want to live right. I want to know what to do if my car starts to hydroplane and there's a wolf back at coyotes and all there is to eat is scorpions. <laughs> I want to know what to do. <laughs> but I told my kids, this book's just missing that last. What if it just said, hey, guys, gals, pay attention. After you've survived your whole life, you're going to die. You're going to die. And here's what you need to know about death and dying and eternal life and what the Bible calls the hereafter. See, here's the deal. Unlike this book in my hands, this book in my hands, the Bible, it talks about how to survive as well, but not just to survive and also to thrive, but also how to live after we die. 
This book actually goes to great lengths on telling us what to do, what not to do, how to live, what's going on. But it also goes to great and thorough and conclusive lengths to tell us what to do when we die. Every single, most of us won't eat scorpions, praise God. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Some of us will hydroplane our cars because we live in Oregon. But as I look around, and you can use the internet later to see if I'm right, 10 out of 10 people die. It's a true story. Every single person here is going to die. You're all going to face that day in your life where it is over for you. That being said, this book goes to great lengths with patience and love and thoroughness and resources and opportunities and clarity and light and warnings and direction. It's all laid out here, piece by piece, picture by picture, that we might know not just how to live right, isn't that cool, but how to die right. If you go to church here, you probably know Sarah and Ollie Yardley. They go to church here, and they help out with our youth group, and Ollie does the words in the back. And I did their wedding a couple years ago here, and they got two little daughters. I just love them, and, and they're growing in the Lord. And the thing about Ollie, though, is that if you see him at any given time, and you say, hey, Ollie, how you doing? He'll usually respond to you this way. Hey, man, how you living? Has Ollie ever said that to you? Last night at the park, he came over to me at, Hope, at Lights in the Park, and he picked me up and gave me a big bear. He goes, how you living, brother? I was like, oh, you just broke my rib, dude. Now, now I got to rub a scorpion on it or something, you know. And where's the rib page, you know? But I like that question, how you living? Because it's not how you doing, it's how are you living? How's life going for you? What are you doing right now? And it's just a, you know, greeting. I think, though, another decent question you and I should ask each other, not just how you living, but how are you dying? Are you ready to die? It's a very important question that doesn't, I believe, get asked enough. We all want to live right, but we need to make sure that we die right too. And we all know how this works, okay? You have plans for the future, do you not? You know what's going on in September. You know what's going on today. When you make plans, maybe for a short term or an extended trip, have you ever taken a three week trip before? Man, three week trips, you gotta pack and you gotta look at your thing and you start packing weeks in advance and you got an itinerary, table of contents, as some people call it. You know, you got all this stuff in here, like, here's what I got in my bag. And you actually plan for scenarios that have never happened, don't you? You pack your underwear, you're like, I'm gonna be there for seven days. Probably only need two pairs of underwear. You know? Or if you're like those other people, you bring 14 pairs, you don't know what's gonna happen, you know. And, you make, all these, you make stuff up in your mind how it's going to go, and you prepare well for the future. You plan. If you got on an airplane, you would know what you brought with you and where the plane's going. Can you imagine getting on an airplane with a bunch of people and just sitting next to me like, do you know where we're going? And everyone's like, I, I, I don't. I don't. It's going to be. Or what if it was even, what, what if you didn't know and everyone was guessing? I feel like this is going to Jamaica. I really do. And some other guy's like, I feel like we're going to Canada. It's crazy. And there'd be no unanimity in what people believe. Everyone would have their own crazy idea where we're going. But instead, when you get on a plane, you know exactly where you're going. You did, a good, you did it right. You bought your ticket. They checked it 75 different times. They made sure you didn't work for Al-Qaeda. They let you on. You know where you're going. You know your destination. We prepare for the future. What about your eternal future? What about when you die? And the reason I'm talking about this, just so you know, like, why is Luke talking about this? Is because Jesus is talking about death and dying and eternal life today. As a matter of fact, I walked into Starbucks early this morning, and I went there to get a sandwich, and I walked in, and Pastor Kelsey Ingalls from the Presbyterian Church was there uh, studying, and she said, what's your message on today? And I said, going to hell. 
So I'm at Starbucks getting ready, you know, and we're going to talk about hell today. Super fired up. Last week we talked about divorce and adultery. Like we're just on a roll at South Beach, you know. Woo, it's a party. We're going to talk about torment and suffering and flames forever. That's what we're doing. What are you talking about, you know? And want to swap, want to swap sermon notes, you know? And, but that's what Jesus talks about. Because he, he wants us to live right, to plan right, but all of us are going to die. Have you ever been by the bedside of somebody who's dying? Have you ever held their hand when they take their last breath? And all of a sudden you're like, wait, where'd they go? Where, where did they go? And they're gone. I've been by the bedside of people on their last breaths. I've been to scenes, homes where loved ones have fallen dead and they're still there waiting for the coroner to come retrieve their body. I've been on accident sites where somebody was well and alive and then immediately perished. At this time in my life, I've attended hundreds of funerals. Very first funeral I ever did, I was about 24 years old and I was at Starbucks and I got a phone call. Bud Amundsen called me and he said, hey, can you, can you do my neighbor's funeral? They're, they're not believers and they just, they just had a dead baby. Midwife and delivery and kid comes out dead. Can you come minister to them? They're kind of young. I think, I think they'd like you and showed up there and I'm just like a fish out of water. Everyone's just devastated. And here I am, Pastor Luke, fresh from Starbucks, and I'll leave the cup in the car. And I remember planning the, cer- the ceremony and then driving out to Jacksonville to some private property, and they're holding this baby, this dead, lifeless boy. And the color was wrong. It didn't look, it just, it's, he's dead. And we prayed. Grandpa, grandpa, the grandfather had made this little casket and, out of wood, and a little hole was dug. And your heart breaks because death happened too soon. I remember one time I was in Walmart shopping and a lady next to me with her cart full of stuff answered her phone and immediately became hysterical, screaming, what do you mean he died? And she dropped her phone and began to stumble and some ladies came over and helped her up and walked her out to her car and left her goods and her life changed forever. I don't even know who she was. Death is coming for every one of us. I've been to open casket funerals, graveside funerals, funerals with loved ones, funerals with strangers. The open casket funerals are the hardest because you want to honor this loved one. There there they are. They're dressed with some makeup on. It's just, where are they? Right there. It's not right. 23 years ago today, my cousin Alan, he died. Today's the anniversary. and He was painting a bridge in Minnesota. He was 19. I was 18. And he was in a boom and the crane gave way and the boom went over and he was killed. 180 foot drop. And I remember we found out I was working at Kokomoka Joe's that day and my uncle called my dad, his brother, and we flew out to Minnesota, and it was an open casket memorial. I remember Alan. Alan was one of those guys that everybody loved. Everybody loved Alan. 
a quote on my older cousin Joey's Facebook page today is a quote of Alan. And Alan's quote is this, I just want everybody to be happy like me. Alan was a great guy. I remember that particular memorial. His wrestling coach was there, packed out. Everyone had nothing but good stuff to say about Alan, but Alan's life ended prematurely. And for the last 23 years, Alan has been in the afterlife with Jesus. His brother, his older brother, is a pastor in Minnesota. Death. When I was growing up here in Newport, my parents operated the Bayview Adult Foster Care Home on 3rd Street, Fogarty. And so within our house, we had 10 bedrooms, six bathrooms. My job was to keep all 10 bedrooms and six bathrooms clean. <sighs> so I'd wake up every morning and I would haul the trash in this entire house and greet these elderly people and help them put their socks on and help a few of them brush their tooth and, you know, put, <laughs> put a the denture in, the fix a dent. And I would, you know, it was just, just kind of crazy. And on more than one occasion, I would empty their trash and come in, and they'd still be in bed, and you pull back the covers a little and touch their arm, and there's no life. Time to call the coroner. And, and death, it happens. I remember when I was just a young guy living in Minnesota, age 10, maybe 11, and there was a big windstorm. And the next day, I went outside, and I found this little baby squirrel that had been blown out of the nest, and it was by itself. And every kid's dream, every young boy's dream is to have a pet squirrel, and this is my day. You know? and so I got this squirrel, and I made a cage for it, and you know, I probably named it something, and got some baby formula. I made my mom go to Kmart and get some baby formula, and began to nurse that sucker back to health. You know? And a couple days went by, and I was having a great time, and on Mother's Day, May 13th, my birthday, Woke up, went out there to see this guy wearing my slacks and my nice button-up shirt. We were a religious family at the time. And there he was, stiff as a board, died on my birthday, you know. And Mother's Day. Death buried that guy. And we've all had animals that have died and friends that have died. Everyone dies. Everything dies. Here's the deal. This is in the text. This is what I'm talking about this. Okay, I want you to, the Lord wants us to be those who have confidence in death. He wants you and I to be those who have questions with answers for the people who suffer. He wants us to be those who navigate through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil, yea, because you are with me. And even in the presence of my enemies, you shall prepare a table before me and anoint me with oil. You know, that's what King David said about death. We got this. It's a valley, it's dark, and we're passing through. And so because death and dying are inevitable, Jesus wants you and I to be prepared for it. He wants us to know how not just how to survive and fight off a shark, if that's what you gotta do, but how to get to heaven when you die. And the Bible is full of instructions on how to live right, but not just that, but how to die right. Moses says it this way in Psalm 90. Moses says, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might gain a what? A heart of wisdom. Lord, here's what he says. I'll read it to you. He says, the days of our years are three score years and 10. That's 70. And if by reason of strength, that means you drink water, vitamin water, they be four score years. That's 80. Yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This is one of those things you don't want to take your chance on. 
You can make a lot of mistakes in life, can't you? Buy the wrong car. You can buy the wrong pants. Go to a restaurant and order the wrong food. Has that ever happened to you? You ever order the wrong food? Ah, oh, it's the worst. Why is that even on the menu? Take this off the menu. Nobody wants this. You'll be, you'll be fine. You can't make a mistake and take a risk on death. You can't avoid it. Wouldn't that be cool? Certain people try and avoid death. There's actually rich people that try and get micro-freezed, and they try and get their heads cut off and their brains you know, preserved and their organs preserved for when science catches up with death and is able to bring them back to life and all this crazy stuff. You can't escape death, but you can prepare for it. You can actually leave here like Moses and say, Lord, give me that ability to number my days so I can gain a heart of wisdom. Yeah, so I can be wise in my days. So I can know what in the world is going on. Here's the deal. From the early parts of Genesis all the way to the very end of Revelation, the Bible covers death and dying. Every single book, it covers it. This is the only authority in the world where we get to base our foundation on death and dying and how it works. Everybody has an idea about it, though. Have you noticed this? Every single person has an idea. If you ask anybody on that plane that nobody knows where it's going to, everyone's going to have some sort of stupid idea. You can go downtown today, if you have a downtown. You can go to the Bayfront. You can go to Starbucks. You can go to Fred Meyers or Safeway and say, hey, what do you think happens when we die? People will usually say this if they don't know. Well, I don't know, but I think. It's like, well, dude, you better be quiet. If you don't know, don't say nothing. Your opinion doesn't count. Opinions are kind of like armpits. Everyone has at least two, and they both stink. You know what I'm saying? Your opinion is not what I need on going to die. I need some rock solid evidence here. I don't wanna know what you think. It's crazy though because every single person has at least had that concept go through their mind and they make up these ideas. And there's lots of ideas, lots of hopes and wishes about what happens when we die. Listen, all of which come from some sort of perverted teaching from another man or another woman or some idea that doesn't make any sense and has no authority whatsoever. This book alone has the authority to tell you how we die and that we die and what happens after we die. And it is clear. Now again, this is gonna be applied to your life in two ways. Number one, for you personally, so you don't have to freak out anymore. You can be fine. You can absolutely be fine. And also so you can aid and help those in your jurisdiction, those you love, those you're walking with in the truth, whether they like it or not. You can be on that plane that nobody knows where it's going and say, I actually know where we're going. I know what's happening. Would you like the itinerary? Would you like to know the flight pattern? I've got it. And people will reject it and say, no, I'm fine. Okay. Or you can know exactly what is going on. I'm going to quickly go over uh, five uh, belief systems in our culture that are uh, accepted but are not true. These are ideas that maybe you even hold on to or wish were true, and I'm here to tell you right now, they're not true. The first one is a, a naturalist position. This is somebody who believes that we cease to exist. They're just our natural body. We were kind of big bang or evolution, or there's nothing really going on, and that we're not a soul. We just cease to exist once we're dead. Uh, one of the benefits to this belief system, by the way, is there's no accountability or judgment for the life you lived or did not live. Okay, that's why people love it. I'm just going to disappear. Nothing really matters. And I'm here to tell you right now, that is not true. 
The naturalist stance is not true. Secondly, the universalist stance. The universalist stance believes that everybody, or at least everybody, will go to heaven, and nobody, or at least not very many people, will go to hell, and that all religions and all paths and all faiths, if you're genuinely seeking them with your best efforts and you're generally a good person, all roads lead to heaven, and all faiths are saving faiths, and all religions are the right religions, the universalist stance is not true. All roads do not lead to paradise and to being with God forever. All faiths are not right faiths. All religions are not right religions. The universalist idea is not true. The third one I'll bring to your attention is the reincarnationist stance. These are the ones who believe that we come back again and get a redo of some sort of a reincarnated creature based on what we did with our previous lives. And there are people that actually believe this so much. Have you met these people? They believe it so much, they'll tell you who they were in the previous life. You ever met that person? I've met dozens of people. They say, oh, I was, before I was this person, I am reincarnated. I was Joan of Arc before I was this person. And I was like, well, Joan of Arc blew it then. Look at you, you know, what's going on here? And they have this crazy elaborate idea. And I've talked to you guys about reincarnation before, the hope that when I come back the second time, I'll get a redo. I'm gonna tell you why this is a big, bad idea. Because if indeed reincarnation is true and you get a second go based on your first attempt, every single one of us in here in our second attempt will be a stick, okay? Based on what you did in your first attempt. Not just a stick, you'll be a stick underwater, okay? Salt water. It's not gonna go good for you. And people say, I just wanna come back and do it again based on what I did the first time. No thanks. I do not wanna be graded on that curve. Reincarnation. There's zero evidence, by the way, zero evidence to back up this idea. It is foolishness. It's fairy tales. It's craziness. It's not true. The second, or should I say the last, second to the last I'll give to you, is the annihilationist. It's very similar to the naturalist, only it's got a religious bent to it. The naturalist is not faith-based. The annihilationist says that we have faith in whether we live for God or apart from God, that as soon as we die, we are annihilated. We cease to exist, that it doesn't really matter. This is what Jehovah's Witness uh, teach their people. And uh, I've actually talked to Jehovah's Witness at my door, and I ask them this question. This is the first question I ask a J-Dub that comes to my door. I say, are you personally going to heaven when you die? And they say, no, I'm not going to heaven. And I say, well, if you're not going to heaven and you want me to believe what you believe and go with you, you're crazy, okay? I'm, I'm going to heaven. You can come with me. I'll take you to heaven based on what the Bible declares, but based on what you're teaching, nobody's going to heaven and I don't got time for that. And I actually forbade the last Jehovah's Witness that came to my door. I said, you're not allowed to come to my entire neighborhood. You can't come here ever again. And he took a step back. He's like, you can't do that. I said, yes, I can. Don't ever come back here again. And he's, he's right, I can't do that. But I shut the door and so I don't know if they came back or not. And I try not to be rude. <laughs> you can't give people a bill of false goods. It's not okay. Soul poison. Eternal soul poison. Not cool. Annihilationism is fake. The last one I'll tell you that it's not true is purgatory. And this is an idea uh, taught many, many centuries ago by our Catholic friends. And the idea of purgatory is this, that when we die, we suffer for a little while after death and we finish up the work of our own salvation for ourselves uh, after we've died. And again, there's no biblical evidence of this. There's no teaching to support this. This was uh, created in the minds of people long ago. And it, too, is not true. Here's what the Bible teaches. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. 
says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. The Bible teaches for the believer to be absent from the body, last breath, is to be present with the Lord. The Bible teaches for the unbeliever to be absent from the body is to be separated from the Lord forever. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. That's what's going to happen. That You will die one time and then your appointment will be called. Let me just see a poll of hands here. How many of you guys are early to all of your appointments and meetings? You're like the early bird? Let me see the early bird people. Don't lie to me. Oh, wait, this is the 11 a.m. service. None of you are early. <laughs> Right, right? Let me, how about the people that are just chronically late? Where's the chronically late people? Raise your hands, raise your hands. Get a clock, you guys. It's not hard. <laughs> there, it's really interesting. There are people who are super early all the time. There are people who are just chronically late. Have you ever missed an appointment, though? Like, you're like, oh, no, you should have been there. Let me tell you about your death. <laughs> you will neither be early, late, or miss it. Okay. God scheduled it. This is great. This is, this is a gift to you, by the way. If you're wondering about how you're going to die or when, stop wondering. Stop worrying. You don't have to. Worry about your doctor appointment. Okay? Worry about your water bill. Worry about that stuff. That's on you. Your day of death, not your problem. God knows. You, you might wonder, well, I don't know if I'm going to die early. Not your problem. He has made that decision for you. You can truly rest. Maybe you've got a lot of kids. What are they going to do? What's God? God has it appointed. Death is a disappointment and a difficulty for everybody. Yet God has put our times and seasons in his hands. You want confidence moving forward as a mom or a dad or as a spiritual leader or as somebody who stands in a world that has all kinds of opinions about where the plane is going? You want authority and confidence? I say, no, 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 that's a bunch of hogwash. That's crazy town. Let me with love and patience tell you the truth. Let me hold your hand through life so you do well, but let me show you the truth so you can die well. How you living? Great question. How are you dying? All of us in here are going to die. It happens to each and every one of us. And Jesus labors long and patiently. I remember shortly after my cousin died, I prepared to go wrestle at Southern Oregon University. 1997. And, and before I left, my pastor at the time, Pastor Frank Parrish, anybody remember Frank Parrish from the Foursquare Church? He baptized me at age 19 right before I left. When Frank Parrish met me, he, he was with my parents and they said, oh, here's our son, Luke Frechette. And so Frank Parrish shook my hand and talked to me. And then I left. And Frank then turned to my parents on that day and says, does your son have a drug problem? Joe and Arlo were like, well, I don't know. And he's like, he he, your son has a drug problem. Maybe, let me rephrase that. And, and I did have a drug problem. My parents couldn't see it as clearly as Frank Parrish. And so you know what Frank Parrish did? He's a suit and tie guy, four square guy. He said, Luke, you're going off to college. Can I take you out to lunch first? My treat, Izzy's Pizza Buffet. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and so I met him there at the Izzy's restaurant, and we talked. And I remember him telling me about his wayward days and his college experience and his downward spiral and telling me what he experienced until everything went off for him and how if I wasn't careful, this would be my same future and my same trajectory. And it wasn't the most fun Izzy's buffet I'd ever had, sitting there with Frank Parrish. But I've never forgotten that meeting where he lovingly told me the truth with patience, even though I wasn't willing to receive it right then. He was 100% right about my future. 
to the T. I didn't see Frank for another 20 plus years until last year. You guys remember that story? I was in Prescott, Arizona last year doing a wedding right about this time. And the day of the wedding, I needed coffee, and so I found the nearest Starbucks. And as I walked into the Starbucks in Prescott, Arizona, I noticed a man sitting over on my left, and I was like, that guy looks like Frank Parrish. No way. He really looks like Frank Parrish. And so I got my coffee, and I sat down right in front of him. And after he asked me if I worked for ISIS, I said no. (laughs) You know. He was scared a little bit, like a guy like me sits down, like, oh, shoot, what's happening? Because he hadn't changed. I had changed. And I said, hey, I said, are you Frank Parrish? He said, yeah, I'm Frank Parrish. I said, no way. Dude, I'm Luke Frechette, man. You baptized me like 20 years ago or more. This is crazy. And the Lord brought our past together, and he's been in the ministry ever since, all over the world, international ministries, telling people the truth about how to live right, and even more importantly, how to die right. And I was able to reach across the table and shake his hand and thank you for loving me telling me the truth when I was an egghead, when I didn't want to hear it, when I really wasn't even worth the time. Do you know Jesus here, according to the succession of verses, is at a meal with friends and foes and followers, and he's telling them hard truths. Last week we talked about divorce, and he told these guys, he said, you guys are trying to justify yourselves before God or before men, but God knows your hearts. And you guys are trying to change the law, but nothing's going to, the law won't pass away. You can't just change stuff. You can't just divorce anybody and everybody you want and remarry. It's not how it works, you guys. The Bible tells us they weren't having it. And so Jesus now tells this next story, verse 19 of Luke 16. That's where you should be. And when I read these words, I want you to think this through with me. Jesus used parables to illustrate principles. Remember that? He would tell crazy stories. I don't believe this is a parable. A parable is made up. It's fake. It's not real in order to illustrate a principle that is real and that is not fake. The reason I don't believe this is a parable, instead I believe this is a true account, is because there are names included. In all of the other 38 parables of Jesus Christ, he never uses a name to describe a person. Just titles and what people do. Nobody's ever named. Here, it's personal. And when Jesus tells this story, I believe it is an account that he was aware of in his omniscience. He knows everything. He's like, guys, I'm going to tell you what hell's like. I'm going to tell you what suffering's like, because I don't want you to blow it. I don't want you to die wrong. And so Jesus loves them as they are, unconditionally, but he loves them too much to not pull them aside, buy them a buffet lunch, and tell them the hard truth. I don't believe I even prayed before our introduction, so before we touch the word now, that's all been introduction, and we have eight minutes left but they're going to be the best eight minutes of the day. Just, let's, just, let's just do a power prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, your word does not return void. It empowers, equips, it prunes, it cuts back, it plants, produces. And in Jesus' name, Lord, we want to be those who supply you the opportunity to impact our lives for the better. I pray for the moms and the dads and the guys and the gals here that we would number our days that we would not squander any more days or moments ever again, knowing that everyone around us, ourselves included, are going to die. That, Lord, that would change us by the power of the Holy Spirit, even today, to love one another, to love our kiddos, to embrace the wives and husbands you've given to us, to not be so distracted by things. Lord, whether we have to stop a hydroplaning car and then find some scorpions to eat or not, that's neither here nor there. 
but we do want to live right, Lord, and we do want to die right as well. Bless this time. May your word, Lord, be multiplied to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to read this as a story and bring the applications. Jesus now tells it as it happened in order that we might know what hell is like. Verse 19. He says, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. He's a Vikings fan, obviously. And he fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Stop right there, eyes up here. This contrast is given of this true story. We see a rich man. He will be the rich man who goes to hell. We see a poor man. He will be the poor man that goes to heaven. That is how they're known. I need to uh, make sure and pull apart two distinctions. The rich man does not go to hell because he's rich, just so you know. And the poor man does not go to heaven vicariously just based on the virtue of his poverty. That is not what is being taught here, just so you know. There are righteous rich and unrighteous rich. There are righteous poor and unrighteous poor. Hope you guys got that concept by now. I have been in the company of the righteous rich. That is rich people that are so righteous, so close to God. I have been in the company of some people that are richer than I can even understand. And yet being with them. Their nobility and humility and love and generosity flow so freely. I've also been with people who are so rich, none of us can even understand, and they are short-sighted, mean, jealous, shrewd, shortcoming, all of that. You've seen that. I've also been in the company of people who are poor and righteous. You ever been invited to somebody's home that's living in poverty and that they're so full of love and humility? Nothing matches in their house. Things are kind of grungy, and yet their humility and their love their forbearance and patience, and you sit there like, whoa, dude, I'm like sitting with kings right now. I've also been in the presence of those who are poor and unrighteous, those who are mad at everybody and want handouts and won't own anything and irresponsible and all of the rest. I need to just point that out. He doesn't go to hell because he's rich, and this poor man does not go to heaven because he is poor. As a matter of fact, we don't know how these two individuals found faith in God or the lack thereof, but we see the attributes of their lives and then the ending not go well for them. Again, verse 19, let me start at the top. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. To fare sumptuously every day is the opposite of eating Taco Bell every day, okay, just so you guys know. And it's even the opposite of eating In-N-Out Burger every day, which to me would be sumptuous faring, you know, that's a good stuff right there. This would be like exotic foods and feasting every day. The Jews loved to eat. They would fare sumptuously like two or three times per year at feasts, weddings, and they would get it on. This guy, every single day. The Bible says he's also wearing purple. Purple in that day would speak of two things, royalty and or wealth. We're not sure who this guy is. He's not named. The poor man is named Lazarus. Most commentators believe that this man who fared sumptuously, clothed in purple, was the artist formerly known as Prince. I'm kidding. It's not true. Sheesh. Totally kidding. I would say this, though. He's not, he is not named. And yet on this life, he had everything. He was a big wig. The man who had nothing is named. Because, you see, in God's economy, everything's different. Everything's inside out, upside down. When we get to heaven, that which is first will be last, and that which is last will be first. This is a concept we need to consider. Those of you who have air in your lungs right now, don't look at the world as the world says it. Look at the world as the Bible teaches it. 
This man had everything and this other man had nothing. The Bible also says in verses 20 and 21 about Lazarus that not only is he a beggar, but he's lame. He's laid there. He's got sores. He can't actually help himself. This guy is the downest and outest. It says he would look for crumbs from the table. In those days, they didn't have Costco's. They didn't have paper plates, no, none of that stuff, no napkins. And so what you would do is eat with your food out of the bowls and you would get all greasy and messy. And if you were super rich, in order to wipe your hands off, you would take bread and you would actually wipe your hands off with the bread and clean your hands that way and throw the bread on the ground for the dogs. And this man's like, dude, if I could just get some of that bread, I won't die. That's all I need. And the dogs were his only friends. We see this contrast here of life. Look at verse 22. So it was that the beggar died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Interesting. I would not suggest anybody take this portion of scripture and build huge theological conclusions, although we can draw these two. When the beggar died, the Bible says he was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The Bible also teaches that when you're born, you're assigned a guardian angel to watch over you, that upon life, you're given an angel, and upon death in Jesus, you're also having angels take you home. This is amazing. This guy dies and doesn't talk about his burial because he probably wasn't buried. In those days, you might have some respect at death, but they would take most bodies of poor people like this and take them to a hillside known as Gehenna, where the fire continually burned and the worm never died, and there would be a constant stench of refuse and waste and bodies and decay. And yet the Bible says, no, no, he's carried to Abraham's bosom. The Bible also says that this rich man was buried. If you know anything about Jewish custom, in those days they would have a great festival when somebody died, buried in a tomb, and they would hire professional whalers to cry for seven days straight for those who had died. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Book the band. What are they doing? <laughs> They're crying. Oh, man. You know, and they got these professional whalers, and this guy probably fared sumptuously even upon his death, but we see this contrast. Look at verse 23. And being in torments, now we're talking about hell. Being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. This is the rich man. And he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water. Cool my tongue for I am being tormented in this flame. Stop right there, eyes up here. Let me just give you quickly this idea of Hades. Hades is another word for a holding place where those before Jesus died and rose again and led captivity free. Before that happened, those who would die in faith would be put in a place called Abraham's bosom, also known as Hades. There would be, as it would seem, two compartments in Hades, one for those who died in faith and one for those who died apart from faith where there's torment and flame. This is where people who would go before Jesus died and now after Jesus died and rose from the dead, now to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When Jesus teaches this though, this contrast, can you imagine a chasm here? The, the Hades where the people who died in faith on one side and the people who died apart from faith on the other side. First thing I want you to notice here is verse 23. Being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. First element you need to understand or attribute of hell is that you will have knowledge but no power. Can you imagine that? He was able to see Abraham oh, and Lazarus, but he had no power to access what they had. Did you know that right now you have both knowledge and power? We know the truth. We have everything to do in our responsibility right now in order to navigate forward. 
in hell you will have the same knowledge, but no power, no opportunity. Second thing we see, he says, he cries in verse 24. And he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He's crying out. Did you know that in hell there'll be constant crying? Have mercy on me and send Lazarus. Did you know the Bible describes heaven as a place where every tear is wiped away? All the pains are made right. Jesus is teaching us this because he doesn't want us to get off on the wrong stop, get on the wrong plane. In hell, there'll be knowledge, no power. There'll be crying and torment and flame. In heaven, the opposite, there'll be comfort and relief and care. He says, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in torment in this flame. There's this idea. I've talked about this before, about heaven and hell and demons and darkness, that it's kind of diminished. One of the number top 10 costumes on Halloween is demons and Satan. People dress up like demons and Satan. I'm just like, dude, it's not, it's probably not a good idea. (laughs) There are songs that talk about a highway to hell. Hell's bells. And maybe you've even heard your friends say, you know what, I don't mind going to hell. At least I won't be lonely. All my friends will be there. I'll be tapping the keg. It's going to be a party. You, you, have you heard that before? People are crazy. There, there will be no partying in hell. It's not going to be one eternal New Year's Eve party. If, if you think Satan is in charge of hell, and he's going to be a real rowdy guy. No, no. Satan is going to be bound and tormented forever. Hell is a place of suffering and flame where the worm never dies. And there will be crying and anguish and regret. And when I see these songs and see people say these foolish things, look, hell's not a good place. It is not a a good secondary option. It's, It's to be avoided at all costs. He says, send Lazarus, I'm tormented. It's not a place you want to even consider. Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime... You received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. This wasn't a surprise to this rich man. Abraham says, don't you remember how, how you lived? And again, his wealth wasn't what sent him to hell. It was lack of faith, which is evidenced by his lack of love to Lazarus. Every day he could have loved this guy, but he didn't do it, because that wasn't who he was. And Abraham says something interesting to him in hell. He says, don't you remember? Let me ask a question this way. How many of you guys remember every single thing you've ever done wrong? Okay. You, really, you really don't. If you did, you would explode. You, you've been given short-term memory loss by God. When you do foolish things, you actually can't remember them all. Okay? If you have a spouse, they help you remember some of them. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, well, well. I'm actually not kidding now. I forget most of the stupid things I do. I really do. I've got like short-term memory loss, and I think the Lord gave that to me so I don't go bonkers and cuckoo in my head. I forget when I've offended people or who's mad at me. My wife will remind me from time to time, oh, that person talked to you. Aren't they mad at you? I was like, what are they mad at me for? I didn't do anything wrong. She's like, oh, right. It's a true story. And I believe God actually helps us to forget things so we don't lose our minds here in hell. I do believe you will remember everything you ever did wrong to deserve that just sentence. 
I do regret many things. I have not forgotten all of my offenses. And my regrets, like your regrets, weigh on me. Do they not weigh on you? Ah, oh, man, if I wouldn't have done that. And I believe one of the attributes of hell that will make it so hellish is your remembrance of every single thing you did wrong and every single thing you should have done right that you failed to do. And it won't be that it'll go through your mind one time, filed away, grace and forgiveness and mercy moving on. It will be replayed over and over and over and over. And the Bible declares every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I believe that is people in hell who will see God as he is and see themselves and say, ah, and grieve and shriek in disappointment of self, knowing that he is the king. And that will never, ever resolve, ever. And Jesus says, hey guys, before dinner's over, I don't want you to die wrong. How you living? How are you dying? Well, I don't really want to worry about it. No, 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 no. You need to worry about it. Figure it out. Get it done. And then don't worry about it again. Abraham says, son, don't you remember? Verse 26, Abraham also says, and besides all this, between us and you, there's a great goal fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, and those from here cannot pass to us. This, to me, is a warning and a promise. Because the same rules that apply to hell apply to heaven. Do you know that? Some people want to believe that hell is temporary. It can't be eternal. That's just too crazy. It's too crazy. If you want to believe that, you have to find some verses. There are none. And I understand why you want to believe that. I get it. But you also have to then apply that same ideology and theology to heaven. Heaven is also temporary. It's not eternal. Why would it be eternal if hell is not so for those of you who are going to heaven eternally, ah, good news. It is a done deal, secure forever. The Bible declares if you are in the Father's hands, no one can pluck you out. The Bible also declares if you have failed in surrendering to Jesus Christ before you die, there will be a fixed gulf between us. Nobody can pass. It is a warning of clarity, a warning of terror. He begins to panic now. Look at verse 27. And then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Stop right there, eyes up here. If Lazarus can't give me just a drop of water, some relief, if I can't get any, can you at least just send them back to my brothers? I've got five more, and God forbid they join me here. Send Lazarus back from the dead to warn my brothers, please. He begins to now have an urgency for those who are not yet dead those who still have power and a responsibility to make a decision. I, I, I can relate to this. He has a deep sense of pain and regret for his family's future. They don't know the Lord. As a matter of fact, we could learn from his urgency. One of the hardest conversations I have with people is about a loved one that didn't know the Lord and they ask me, what do you think happened? God's grace is amazing. I do believe there'll be more people in heaven than we think. I believe God saves individually. He knows every person. He'll judge them accordingly. But you as a believer must trust the Lord to save those who want to be saved. This guy in hell, send Lazarus. Don't let my family die without the knowledge of hell. 
Do you have that same urgency? You can today, even in just a peaceful, humble heart. Like, oh, dude, everyone I see today, I want, oh, Lord. It'll change the way you love them, by the way. This guy stepped over Lazarus every single day on his way to Starbucks. I want to see this guy, this bum at my door. He wants my bread. If you think about people going to hell, you'll look at them differently. You'll, you'll truly just, whoa, I just want to honor you as a man or a woman. I just want to honor you. I want to make eye contact. The love of God will channel through you, and I believe the Holy Spirit will do exactly what he's asking for here, where people come to know Jesus in this real, intimate way. Look what Abraham says, by the way, to this response. Abraham, verse 29, says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Whoa. Send, send Lazarus back from the dead, a miracle, a resurrection of some sort. You know what Abraham says? They've got the Bible. They, they know what it says. This is profound, by the way, because most people know what the Bible says. They've heard it. What they do with that fact, that truth, though, is individual. Most people know what the book says, but most people, in a moment of a hard heart or a stiff necked, Demand more. Have you met that person before? Well, I read the Bible. Well, you did? What, what did you think? Well, you know, I read it. I saw what it said. If God would just prove it, though. <laughs> Come again? If God would just prove that he's God. Wait, can you say that to my face? Say that to my face. And then I ask him this question. Do you believe that Jesus was a historical figure? Because 99% of people do. The 1% that don't are delusional. Okay, just so you know. Jesus was a real historical figure that historically, outside of the Bible's context, historically died and rose from the dead. And if you ask people, do you believe that Jesus was historical and that he died and rose from the dead? Yeah, I totally believe that. Cool, so do you love him? No. What are you waiting for? Well, one time I was in a forest and I prayed that God would have two stars collide. And if he would just have these two stars collide, I would believe and he didn't do it. And people have this extra stipulations they put upon God. If he would just do this, if, if he would just have two semi-trucks collide, one full of chocolate and one full of milk, and I'll be happy then, and I'll give my life to Jesus. And he says, you know what Abraham says to this request? They have the law and the prophets. That's enough. For you who are believers, this is a strong word. Give the law and the prophets to your kids. Tell them the truth. It's enough. I didn't see any shooting stars. That's not why I got saved, just so you guys know. There's no cosmic accidents. I read this book and God got a hold of my heart and I let him in. And you read this book and you conclude and that's the truth. That's it right there. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, you shall be saved. There are dozens and thousands and millions of people that believe he died and rose from the dead, but they have not yet confessed it and they don't believe in their hearts. There is an intellectual belief and an emotional internal belief. And until that belief goes from your head into your hearts, you are not born again. Until you realize and say, yes, I believe with all of my heart that Jesus Christ was born again, raised from the dead. Verse 31, final verse in the thoughts. Lazarus is still panicking. He says, but, but he said to them, if they, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets... Or verse 30, and he said to them, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Did you know, by the way, there was actually in that day a man named Lazarus, Jesus' good friend in John 12, that was risen from the dead. And when he was risen from the dead in that day, they actually tried to kill him instead of become believers. 
And here he is in hell. He's like, dude, if, we just, if, there's a res- if somebody be raised from the dead, they'll believe. Abraham's final answer. He said to them, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. To me, this screams of Jesus, who is the embodiment of the word. The word has been declared. It's pretty simple. And then he rose again from the dead. And yet still to this day, there are resistors and rejectors. There are still those who come up with their own conclusion. And yet he's given to us the way to live right and to die right. Now, let me just give four thoughts before we close with communion. Because in hearing all of this, no doubt some of you have questions. Does anybody have any questions? Hell and dying? Covered it all, didn't we? Can I get it? No, we did not cover it all. As a matter of fact, if you're a Christian here, you should have questions. Okay, if you're not a Christian here, you probably have questions and criticisms. I get it. So do I. I'm like, wow, it's a lot to swallow. Let me give you a couple thoughts for your questions. These are for you personally and also for the people you come in contact with that you might lovingly, patiently labor with them. Here's a few of the common questions that come up when talking about heaven and hell and damnation, torment, a worm that never dies, eternal life, separation, all of that. Here's the three questions that come to mind the most. Why would God do this? Better, better have an answer for that. Number, number two, I thought God was love. I mean, does, does, does this sound loving to you? Like, at surface level? Love is not the absent of wrath, just so you guys know. As a matter of fact, wrath is one of the attributes of love. I love my family so much that if anything causes danger to my family, you will see my love displayed in wrath. I will break that shark's neck while hydroplaning to the scorpion. (laughs) Whatever. Do you guys understand that? Wrath is not the absence of love. It is the embodiment of love against that which is dangerous towards that which he loves. Third question, this doesn't seem fair. And you have to understand that. Here's here's my answers to those three questions. This doesn't seem fair. Why would God do this? And I thought God was love. Number one, first answer. This will answer a lot of your questions, by the way. The answer is this. You don't know what you're talking about. Can you swallow that one? Let me ask it this way. How many of you guys know everything? Like you're just, you're Mr. Smarty Pants. Like you, how many of you guys would be here with me and say, I I barely even know what a table of contents is, you know? I, I don't know hardly anything. Like, do you know how an eyeball works? Anybody know how an eyeball works? How, how light comes in and it reflects it and turns it inside out and backwards and then creates pixels and images and colors and focuses? And anybody know how, how your fingerprints work and how they're all unique? And not one person has ever shared the same tongue pattern that you have right now for all the billions and billions of generations. And all the snowflakes in all the world have never been duplicated. And, and all the snowstorms and all, the, and all of it's so unique. And God causes all the cosmos to all this stuff. And, and here we are like, I got questions, you know. We're born naked, screaming, making a mess. This is how we come into this world, just all jacked up, all mad. Isn't that crazy? Isn't this crazy? Just think we know everything. And you, you spend the first 25 years of your life thinking you know everything, don't you? You're just like mess, mad, all, you know. All this. Question, here's the, it's going to help you for most of the questions you have in your life. You don't know what you're talking about. This really does help me. I'm like, Lord, you know. Would you set my calendar? Would you pick the day I die? You picked the day I was born. Would you pick my life? Oh, Lord, I don't know anything. And God says there's a heaven and there's a hell, and we resist and we reject. Oh, come on. Dude, you don't know anything. You don't know what it was like when God created everything and when there was a rebellion in heaven against him and hell was created for the angels, not for humans. 
And you don't know what it was like that day in the Garden of Eden when Satan crept in and hijacked his son and his daughter. And you don't know what it was like when Jesus paid for the sins of the world and hung on the cross and himself went to hell. You don't know what it was like. And we don't know those things. And you would make a very good distinction this morning to say, Lord, I don't know anything. I trust you. I'm not in charge. I'm not El Supremo. You are. Number two, this will help you with your questions. People get scandalized when you say there's only one way to heaven. Okay? That anybody gets to heaven at all is what shocks me. Not, not that there's one way. People are like, oh, there's only one way? I can't believe there's any way at all. People want more than one way. Isn't that crazy? And I always ask them, how many ways should there be? Three? Seven? 28? Everybody goes. And when somebody says, yeah, everybody should go to heaven, they quickly stop. Everybody? Really? And everybody has a standard. No, no, not everybody. Well, now you're playing God. So what God did, instead of making it confusing, he said, no, no, there is one way, one truth, one life, and it's me. There's only one way. That shocks me. You know what I would have done if I was God? Looked down at us and said, there's no way in. There's no way in. Like, they'll be all right. They'll figure it out. Like, they got that How to Survive book. They'll be fine. But they ain't, they ain't getting in here. No, no. He made a way. He made a way. That's the part that shocks me. People are mad. There's not more than one way. I'm freaking out. There is a way at all. Number three, you need to understand this. The invitation to heaven and avoid hell is open to anybody and everybody, and no one is excluded. Unlike Buddhism, Islam, Mormonism, Scientology, and every other religion created by man. Every one of them have a set of rules for you to complete and keep. And the main way that you and I receive heaven is not by what we do, but what he did. It is an open invitation to every single person. No other religion can claim this. Anybody and everybody who accepts Jesus and his free ticket in will be accepted into heaven by grace and grace alone. It is a gift lest anyone should boast. As a matter of fact, some people want to believe that the message of this book is I'm sending you to hell. One of Jesus' very final words in John 14 was, I'm actually going away to prepare a place for you in heaven. Did you know that's what he's doing? What is Jesus all about? I'm, I'm making rooms for every single body. Anybody, all whosoever would come to me, in no wise will I cast out. I'll receive you all. And people want to distort the message of the Bible and say, Jesus is sending people to hell. Did you know that one person will go to hell unless they willingly step over Jesus' dead body? They have to bypass his sacrifice and what he did. Everybody is welcome to heaven. Final thought is this. Because those who have questions here and maybe critics, the message of salvation deliverance from hell, how to be saved, will be given to all people everywhere at one point in their life. Every single man or woman will be given an opportunity to listen, double click on what God has revealed to them. The Bible teaches an idea that there's an age of accountability. That is, before we reach a certain age, there is a certain moment in time of everybody's life where God gives us enough information in our own unique lives to double click on that and say, what was that? I'll take some more of that. Or to harden your heart and stiffen your neck and reject what God has given to you. A common idea is this. What about the aborigine guy who never had a dad, raised in the woods, and never met another human in his entire life, and he's out there by himself? Okay. First thing I say is this. Unless that's you, that's not your problem. Okay. Not your problem. You have your own problem. The Bible says this in Psalm 19. 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows handiwork. Day into day utters knowledge, and night into, or day into day utters speech, and night into night reveals knowledge, and there is no language where their voice is not heard. The Bible declares that God has given his message of creation to every single person. And if that aborigine guy would double click and say, hey, who made the earth and the star? Did you know that God will send to him more evidence, more revelation? God will seek every single person individually and accurately before they come to the judgment seat. And then the, the film will be played. Hey, remember that time I sent you this? Remember that time you got this leaflet? Remember that time? Here's the problem for you and I who are Americans and not aborigines. You and I have lots and lots and lots of information given to you and I. We have podcasts and Bibles and Christian bookstores and Bible colleges and knowledge and knowledge and every bit of knowledge you've ever been given to by God, you will be held accountable for how you reacted to that, that knowledge. The Apostle Paul had knowledge too. He was the studiedest of all Jews. He knew the truth and where it was pointing and he rejected the Lord. You know what the Lord did? He showed up in a vision to him and punched him in the face. Knocked him off his horse, Acts chapter 9. I love that part. Here's Jesus trying to save this guy. He won't have it. Jesus is like, I'm going to punch you. And Jesus does it. Jesus is able to save anybody. No one is going to be held accountable for a lack of knowledge. They're all going to be held accountable for the knowledge they were given. You need to know that as a Christian because someone's going to test you. You college students going back to the university are going to get thrown under the bus. And how is God fair? Psalm 19, Acts 9. God knows how to save. It's you and I who resist when the lifeguard is trying to save our lives. I'm going to have the worship team come up and join us now. And we're going to respond. And the way we respond at our services here is by taking communion. And when we take communion, we do so remembering the death and burial of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That he himself tasted death. That he paid for our death in so doing. That he knew what it would take in order to rescue you and rescue me and to set our feet on a firm foundation. And then when he gives us these hard teachings, Jesus gave this hard teaching to those Pharisees there on that day at that dinner, knowing that he was going to go pay for everything. And the difference between me standing up here and giving you a bunch of advice or a bunch of fear tactics or a bunch of bullying... is that there's no escaping death. When you die, you're not just going to disappear. You're going to live forever. There is no purgatory. This is your chance. There is no do-over. You are too special to just disappear and go nowhere. Think about it. You were made in the very image of God. Everything about you is a miracle. You're fantastic. The Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in your mother's womb. The incredible anatomy and physiology behind your body, all the th inner workings going, all the hidden stuff you don't even know about symbolizes all the things in the spirit we don't know about, but it's just, it's working. God says, I want you to take care. Life is short. Teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom, that we might be good husbands and good wives. We might be good moms and good dads, good friends. They give each other bear hugs and said, how you living?
but to also slow it down and say, how are you dying? Lord, I don't, even, I don't even know how this looks in our day, Lord. We don't like talking about death. And maybe we won't have today that opportunity to talk about death with somebody, but if we look at them differently as somebody who will die and exist somewhere forever, maybe our love for them will grow. Maybe we won't re- reject them like this man did Lazarus. I pray for a softening of my heart. Maybe you're here today and I'll, the first thing I'll do is give you an opportunity to, if you just need your heart softened towards, towards humanity, would you just, would you raise your hand just right now and say, yeah, Lord, soften my heart. I'm just a jerk. I'm not nice. I'm mean. I, I feel like that rich guy kind of just, I see people in need, but eh. And you can't, you can't fix everything. I realize that, but you can love. I pray for greater love, Lord. Forgive me. Forgive us of our sin. We, we who are Christians here, forgive us of our sin of knowing the way out and, and yet not caring that some people will die and be tormented in flame forever. Break our hearts, Lord. Jesus, they killed you just shortly after this meal. They really ramped it up. They didn't like hearing this stuff. You can put your hands down. I want to give an opportunity for those who are, are not yet saved. Not somebody who's already risen your hands before at church, but somebody who's, who's never done it. You don't know if you're saved, and you, and, and you, you, you know you're going to die. And you want to take the law and the prophets, the word of God that you've heard today, and say, that's enough for me. I'll give my life to Jesus right now. I will believe in my heart, and I will confess with my mouth that he is Lord. I'll believe that God raised him from the dead. Would you just raise up your hands right now if that's you? Never, never done it before. Do it today. This is you. Seal the deal with Jesus. Raise up your hands. I see hands going up. In Jesus' name, you are saved. And I would, I would ask you right now, wherever you're at, you're sitting down, to say, I believe God rose Jesus from the dead. Just say it right now out loud, to, to, just so you can hear it. I believe God rose Jesus from the dead. I believe Jesus has the authority to speak on these matters. I believe he died and he delivered captives. Say, I believe. Say it to yourself. Lord, in Jesus' name, save souls. It's that powerful. It's that simple. Thank you, Jesus. This is what you do. You can put your hands down. And as we all come to the table of salvation and sacrifice, may we be reminded, Lord, of your great death for us. I love fun sermons. I love happy days and barbecues. But we don't know when that appointment is coming. We don't know what's going to happen. May we not be fools. But instead, may we be wise. We love you so much, Jesus. Thank you for loving us first and for dying for our sins. We do what we do now, proclaiming your death and examining ourselves until you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.